You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. down to the internet yesterday with Todd, physicist of Iowa, and Ed, philosopher of the far west, to podcast for the people there. Friends, this is The Core Curriculum. Uh, This is the Christian Humanist Radio Network's program that is dedicated to slow reading. This is season two, which means we have finished up with Homer's Iliad, and we are moving on to Plato's Republic. And so I'm uh, happy to introduce my two co-conspirators perhaps, perhaps my fellow philosophers. Uh, but one of them is Todd Pedler. He's a uh, professor of physics at Luther College. Todd, how are things? Uh, things are good. Uh, being on sabbatical means I can do this kind of thing with more regularity. <laughs> but uh, no, life life is great. Uh, if only the weather uh, would cooperate and uh, bring us back to within you know a few degrees of normal. Um, I think we're 30, 30 degrees below normal right now. So. Oh, that's that sounds awful. It's but, interesting. <laughs> we're also joined by uh, Ed Song. Ed is an associate professor of philosophy, if I'm not mistaken, at Westmont College or Westmont University, Ed? College. College. Very good. Very good. Uh, Ed, how are you? I'm very well. Glad to be chatting with the two of you. Todd and I have recorded together. I think we did a Halloween episode some years ago. Nathan Gilmore is the only of anyone in the Humanist Networks who I have actually met in the flesh, though I believe we have never recorded together, Nathan. I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. Well, guys, uh, as we start into uh, Republic, uh, I think it might be interesting just to say uh, for a moment, uh, first of all, what are our uh, personal histories with this text, and then uh, what translations are we going to be using for today's recording? So, Todd, what do you got? Well, so uh, personally, I've I've only read in bits and pieces here and there as needed, right? So sometimes you say, "Oh, well, there's something in Book Five. Let's go check that out." Um, with the exception of of a, a good deal of well, the entirety of books six and seven, I've read repeatedly because we teach. Uh, we teach the allegory of the cave, and I like to go back to book six to, you know, to uh, set my own context, you know, in in teaching through the allegory of the cave. So it's one of the several selections we teach in our our, our first year Paideia class that I'm that I'm part of. Um, but you know, the rest of it I've read here and there. So so my reading has spanned most, if not of the work, all of all of the work over the course of, of, of many, many years, but my actual only sit down straight through read is happening right now. So, <laughs> so that, that actually Very is going to be helpful for me. Um, uh, as we, as we, as we do this core curriculum thing, um, it'll be much, you know, appreciated for me to actually set the whole thing in its own context. Uh, uh, together. And if you want to go uh, translations now, um, what I've got, I've got two of them. One is, um, one is by CDC Reeve. It's the trans, it's, it's the revision of the older, uh, one by Grube or Grube A. Um, and then Reeve has another one, uh, which is, which is his own, uh, complete translation, but they're both published by Hackett. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, Nathan will have something to say about my choice there, but. <laughs> very good. Very good. Ed, how about you? So as a philosopher, you know, Plato is a part of the canon. I, Plato is the very beginning of the canon. Interestingly though, I, you know, I have. I think I've taught the Republic once, maybe as a TA in graduate school. I myself, I don't know that I've ever taught the whole of, I've certainly taught bits of the Republic, but I don't think I've taught the whole of the Republic, like, ever. And Mm. my initial exposure to the text was like, uh, I guess, as a sophomore or junior in college, 
taking it as a philosophy major. Um, that I remember very distinctly because the instructor of the class was Jonathan Lear, who's a pretty prominent philosopher, uh, specialist in ancient philosophy. The thing that's interesting about Lear, though, is that in addition to that, Lear is also a Freud scholar um, and very interested in psychoanalysis. So he hmm. was teaching ancient philosophy that year, but we spent... Much to the chagrin, I think, of other faculty in the department, we, we we might have read maybe one or two other Platonic dialogues. I don't think we read any Aristotle, and we basically spent 80% of the semester carefully reading The Republic, hmm. which was really interesting, And but then also sort of taught from the vantage of of a Freudian, you know, who's very interested in the hmm. kind of tripartite um, account of the soul that is offered up in in Plato, and so it, yeah. So that that was my that was my exposure. All right, so it looks like I'm going to be the Republic guy of this trio. Uh, I taught this dialogue from cover to cover for the first time in the fall of 2006. Uh, I've taught it cover to cover probably ten more times since then, uh, and I've taught excerpts of it a number of times in addition to that. So. There are books of the New Testament that I know better than Plato's Republic, but not that many of them. So, wow. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really do. Uh, the, this text is in my bones, so to speak. Uh-huh. So before we dig into the, the, the dialogue itself, though, uh, just a couple uh, setup notes uh, for our listeners. First of all, uh, when we refer to parts of the dialogue, we're going to try to use Stephanus numbers. Uh, the Stephanus numbers, if you've got a printed edition of Plato, are going to be the ones in your margins. They're going to be the ones that read, you know, 331C, 331D, so on and so forth. Uh, those are named after a printer in Germany named Stephanus. Uh, and his claim to fame is that he printed the first collected works of Plato and created this numbering system. His family's claim to fame, interestingly enough, is that Grandpa Stephanus invented Bible verses. Uh, it was the Stephanus printing house, and Grandpa Stephanus in particular... Uh, who first started numbering the sentences rather than just the chapters of the Bible when he printed the Bible. So uh, the next time that you see a John 3.16 sign go up at a field goal, uh, you can thank Grandpa Stephanus for that one. <laughs> That's a pretty great thing to have on your resume. Like, I invented Bible verses. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But the other thing, uh, and Ed actually brought this up before we started recording, we should probably say something about the uh, human being from, you know, 5th and 4th century Athens called Plato. Uh, so, Ed, do you want to take a swing at that for a moment? Sure, and I'm happy to have you all chip in. I mean, this is going to be, like, the most uh, general of things to say about Plato. But, I mean, Plato is the father of Western philosophy. There were certainly Greek philosophers before him. And, of course, his teacher Socrates was hugely influential. Socrates himself never wrote anything down, and a lot of the pre-Socratic philosophers we don't we only know by name and reputation, and sometimes fragments are quoted from other works, but a lot of their work is lost. But essentially, Western philosophy as we know it um, arises from Plato, and as is often said, the history of Western philosophy is but a footnote to Plato, which I think is a bit of an overly exaggerated thing to say, but nevertheless captures something of the influence that Plato has had over all of Western intellectual life. So that also is a pretty nice thing to have on your CV. Yes, indeed. And I'll go ahead and note if we have any uh, process theology people out in the audience, it was actually uh, Whitehead who coined that uh, one-liner about Plato and the footnotes and all that good stuff yeah good thanks for adding that i think there would have been a lot of people who were upset with me for not saying that about, about hey the, those process people they are very very protective of whitehead <laughs> um in any case plato himself the man was born of an aristocratic family i think his father died at an at a relatively early age uh, but in any case he was uh an aristocrat of an arist of aristocrats Born in something like 428 BC or BCE, as you will, and dying in 348. Spent a good part of his time sort of in and out of Athenian politics. I think his early years was spent under the reign of 30, 
which was uh, how to describe that. I, 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 it's been too long since I've studied it, so take a swing. So f- following the golden age of Periclean Athens, their rule in Athens fell under the hand of a group of, of 30 aristocrats. Uh, that was a little bit of a dark time in Athenian politics. Uh, Plato himself was sort of called to participate in that rule, but forswore it because he was put off um, by the character and direction of the leaders. But, you know, one interesting thing about his his life and sort of going in and out of Athenian politics, being super suspicious of a lot of things going on politically in Athens at the time, deeply form a lot of his attitudes about the nature of the political realm that we see arising in this book, which is both an analysis of the virtue of justice in an individual soul or psyche in the first instance, but also an analysis of what justice looks like writ large over a society. Um, obviously, the most formative thing for Plato was seeing his dear friend, mentor, and teacher Socrates arrested on charges of corrupting the minds of Athenian youth. This was actually after the reign of 30, put up for trial, and then ultimately um, killed by by that. And those experiences have sort of formed a kind of a suspicion about his views about politics, uh, culminating in his view that we'll be discussing um, over, the, over the course of this podcast, right? And the idea that ultimately the only people who can be trusted as rulers of a society are philosopher kings, right? Either rulers who are themselves philosophers or rulers who, who become philosophers in the course of their education and training. Right. Well, we got a few episodes before we get to that. First, we need <laughs> to go down. Uh, and I began the episode with that line intentionally. One of the things literarily about this dialogue is that whenever you see dissent, going from a high place to a low place. Something important is happening. So uh, this is uh, Pee-wee's secret word. Whenever someone goes down <laughs> over the course of the next 10 episodes, scream real loud! All right, so... Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and listeners, if you could see Todd's face right now, uh, it would be worth it as it is worth it to me. But Todd, eventually we get to this discussion of justice or dikaiosune in the Greek. Uh, what is old Socrates doing before we get to that discussion? Before we get to that discussion, uh, well, he's at a religious festival, if I recall correctly. Um, yes, indeed. And so he has come, It's it, which is interesting in and of itself, given some of the things he's charged with at some point, um, uh, at some point later down the road. But... Um, so I get, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tease out the meaning in your question here. Um, there, there really wasn't all that meaning, just what happens in the narrative <laughs> before the conversation begins, and you've already said it. Well, uh, <laughs> very, very good. See, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm in, I'm in class with Professor Gilmore here. I mean, this is uh, <laughs> apparent. <laughs> but, um. Nathan apparently cold calls his students in class. I guess so. he does. I, I guess he does. But, uh, um, you know, that's, that's, that's perfectly all right. I mean, his initial conversation is interesting. He's, uh, he's speaking with an older gentleman, Cephalus, right? Um, and as, you know, soon the, the discussion passes on to, to his, to his son, um, in an interesting, in an interesting manner. But, um, uh, you know, the discussion that, uh, <laughs> ensues between them is about the good life right and, and 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 who can live well and what are the pressures upon uh upon those um who either have wealth or don't and so forth um i'm fumbling around with an answer as a, as a college freshman in my own class uh <laughs> ed do you have more to add in terms of context setting yeah ed i mean what else is there to say about the narrative before we get into the discussion of justice yeah, so so Socrates is down at the festivals in Piraeus. Piraeus, I guess, is like the port city that's sort of just outside of Athens, right? A few yeah, miles. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there is a, a walled uh, road, you know, walls on either side from the main city of Athens down to the Piraeus. So you really do walk down this hill to get to this port city. And that's yeah. where there's going to be a lot of foreigners, right? I mean, the people that he runs into are not themselves Athenians which is interesting at the very least. 
Yeah, and 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 I think the connotation of Piraeus is that it is a loud, dirty, um, it's it's the loud, dirty, urban environment uh, set apart from Athens, which is up on the hill, and um, right, and and so the. The, the analogy that's being drawn is that Socrates in having this conversation has descended down into the cave, right? Into the, the, the dirty muck. Boiler alert. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, and Rosebud was a sled. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> um, and Kaiser Soze is... Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but so yeah, he's down in the Piraeus and he runs across the old man Cephalus. I you know I guess traditionally people say Cephalus, but like that's weird to me because it, it should be Cephalus if we're being proper. Uh, honored, honored yeah, I, 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 t- I tend to say Cephalus myself, but yeah, I mean oh, good. so the old man Cephalus. You know, they get into a conversation about you know how's old age treating you, and Cephalus says uh, it's fine. You know. Uh, if you're a good person, old age isn't bad at all. And Socrates, you know, says, well, do you just find it easy because of your wealth? And Kefala says, no, I mean, wealth helps, but you still worry about Dikaiosune. You worry about your justice, mm-hmm. your righteousness, right? Uh, and, you know, Socrates says, well, what is that thing? And Kefala's answer is, well, it means giving back what you owe, because, you know, if you've got some money, you can pay your debts before you die, and therefore you don't leave your children with debts. That's what Dikaiosune is. And of course, you know, as I always tell my class, if Socrates would just leave it there, we'd have a three-page dialogue. <laughs> Instead, we get the Republic, uh, because, you know, he calls that into question, because uh, if someone has gone mad and, you know, they have lent you a sharp weapon, it's probably not justice to return that weapon to them right in that moment. And at that point, Cephalus does what a lot of my freshmen do, and he utterly checks out and never comes back. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, then we get into this conversation with Polymarchus, right? Uh, the son of Cephalus. And for him, Dikaiosune is to do good to your friends and do harm to your enemies. And I know, Todd, I just cold called you, but you and I have actually <laughs> talked about Iliad recently. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, uh, we, imagining that. We, we, we did a while back. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that, you know, Polymarchus, you know, whose name means warlord, right, uh, is saying, you know, do good to your friend, do harm to your enemies, when one of the texts that gets referenced in this dialogue a great deal is a text, namely the Iliad, mm-hmm. where it's really hard to figure out who your friends and your enemies are, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the that's the very interesting thing that, that Socrates does in twisting poor little... <laughs> I don't want to say poor little Polymarchus, but that's what I think of him as. You know, he's he's taking, uh, you know, twisting him up into knots, trying to figure out, well, what does it mean if I do, if I if I make a mistake, if I make a mistake about who my friends are, then what is the just thing? Is the just thing to act on my belief, or is the act, or or is the just thing to act on reality? Uh, is it just to treat those who are really your friends well? Um, or and, and or or to treat all those who you consider your friends to be, uh, you know, to treat them well, uh, and and likewise with the enemies, and and you know this is so typical of what Socrates does so much of the time uh, when he's got somebody uh, that he's engaging with that he will you know lead lead them to their own you know recognition of of the contradictions um that lie within yeah so i, I you know I, for me the 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 interesting part of that discussion really is well you know how does one deal in a world in which our own judgments about people are often wrong uh what then does justice mean if we may inadvertently treat poorly those who really are our friends, but we're mistaken about it. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I do, I do feel for the guy at times. Um, uh, as again, with some of the interlocutors that uh, Socrates runs into, I feel like, man, well, he really got you there. Um, and, you know, Polymarchus, like many, uh, ultimately comes to confess his own confusion about, uh, about what he himself even had, had previously said. Um, 
and you know ultimately where this where this comes down right this discussion is uh, a, a, a statement uh, well no this is this is <laughs> a bit longer we're going to come to the point that doing harm to anybody is not uh, uh, is not justifiable or is not just yeah I mean do you want to walk us into that Todd or do you want to well, let I'd have, Ed have let, Ed, <laughs> let Ed have a swing at Paul I'd, Marcus I, first. I, I, I want to let Ed have a swing first because, yeah. <laughs> Paul Marcus is art- articulating probably a familiar kind mm-hmm. of a view that would have existed in Athenian society at the time. That uh, a familiar view amongst aristocratic Athenian society that our goal is just to help our friends and punish our enemies. I think it's 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 worth pointing out here that just the ancient pre-Christian pagan morality is so radically different from our own. Like mm. we would kind of take it for granted that there's a generalized kind of obligation of charity that is to say to help people who are in need regardless of their attachment to us. And nothing like that existed in the pre-Christian ancient world like the pagan world. Um Right, and, so, and, and in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was written, do good to those who do good for you and right. do harm to those who do harm for you. That's never in the Old Testament. I mean, he seems to be, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that Jesus read the Republic, but he seems to be, <laughs> you know, making reference to this very common uh, morality that you just outlined, Ed. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. A, a question that I have with this is, uh, because in the midst of this discussion, you go down the road, or Socrates takes you down the road of questioning what happens to those to whom harm is done. Uh, what happens to those when you do evil or ill to them? Do they not become more evil? Do they not become more, you know, less just? And I'm wondering with regard to this old view, which you know, would be generally to do good to friends and do bad to enemies. Um, did it extend to the corrupting influence that that kind of has? Say more about that. Give me an example. Well, I mean, he. I've got. Okay, let's let's pull out the text, right? Because <laughs> I know I. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not just pulling this out of uh, uh, in there. Where does it have? Where does it say? Where does it say? Um, so okay, so we are at three thirty-five, uh, three thirty-five B to C, um, and you know he says here you want us to add to this that it is just to treat well a friend who is good and to harm an enemy who is bad, and Polymarchus of course says yes, Socrates, right. Um, is it then the role of a just man to harm anyone? Certainly he must harm those who are both bad and enemies. And then he goes on into one of his, you know, uh, specific examples. Says, do horses become better or worse when they're harmed? Worse. With respect to the virtue that makes dogs good or the one that makes horses good? The one that makes horses good. So he's being specific, of course. And when dogs are harmed, they become worse in the virtue that makes dogs good. Uh, not horses, necessarily. Then won't we say the same thing about human beings too, that when they are harmed, they become worse in human virtue. So is that really in the ethic? The, the idea that not, you know, or is that even considered? Well, it's interesting. And, and I've seen a lot of people complain about this with mm-hmm. regard to Socrates and a lot of these dialogues is that he uh, equivocates certain terms, right? Uh, so when we say do harm uh, in the context of warfare, for example, uh, we don't mean to lead them to bad morals. We mean to kill them so they can't fight anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, you know, I, I, I realize I'm kind of pulling that from Clausewitz, but I'm also pulling that from <laughs> every war story ever written, right? You kill enough of the enemy so that they can't fight anymore. Right. Uh, but what Socrates is, again, I think equivocating here, and I, I think there's mm-hmm. a purpose to it, and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he is taking harm to mean making worse on a shared common criterion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, what is it about human beings that is good? Well, they're justice, they're dikaiosune. Mm-hmm. So to harm them must be to make them less just, less dikaios, right? Mm-hmm. Ah, dikaios, I guess the Greek would be. Uh, well, I mean, that's true, 
but that's not really what anyone does with a spear in a war, as far as I can tell. No, no, but but so I I, I, mean, I guess my question is: Is Socrates going? You know, is this merely a rhetorical device where he's saying, "Well, here's the natural, you know, here's the natural outcome of, uh, you know, you beat a dog. What happens to the dog? Well, the dog becomes aggressive, more aggressive, uh, perhaps. Right, That's right. One. Uh, and the same thing is done to a human. What happens? He's using this as part of his argument that harm done um, is 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 not good, regardless of who the object of 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 the, the maltreatment is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just I'm wondering if this is something he's introducing or if this is a notion that exists already. Well, I mean, honestly, I think this is part of what sets Thrasymachus off when Thrasymachus jumps in later. Sure, is that is that he can sense this equivocation, right? Ed, you had something to say. I I, I should let you jump in. Well, there. yeah, you know, I mean, part of this not to tread on the and not to tread on the toes of people who are coming after us discussing book two. And again, spoiler alert. <laughs> but part of this is in in anticipation of of um, the kind of virtue that justice is and its connection to the good life, right? So part of what's really distinctive about the Platonic or Socratic view about all of this is that, like, the good life for us is going to be independent of all of the things that happen to us, right? So Plato is going to be defending the very counterintuitive line. Um, I mean, counterintuitive, I think, for them and certainly for us, that the good life is going to be independent of what happens to us. And that good, the good life ultimately is going to be a matter of the state of our souls. Um, you know, that that problematic first gets laid out in in uh book two i guess you know so that i think is a very counterintuitive line that like um the state of our souls uh is is what really matters though i should say when i say state of their of our souls that has a, a kind of a connotation to the 21st century ear and, you know the greek word there is suke or psyche uh, it doesn't necessarily have like religious connotation, but it just means like the state of our of our mind, I guess, might be hmm. the best English translation. Nathan, you had earlier m- mentioned the word dikaiosune, hmm. which we haven't gone back and talked about. It might not be a bad idea to sort of say something about that word, just because that's a, like because it's a super interesting word, and it, it's it's a prominent word in the conceptual universe of the Old and New Testaments, yeah, yeah. and 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 it's kind of contra. Well, I'm, a little bit. The, its translation as justice can be a little bit controversial. Hmm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and by the way, listeners, this is how you can tell Ed's getting excited when the prefix <laughs> super comes out. Uh, this is super important. That means we're into Ed's uh, wheelhouse here. This is good. This is good. Dikaiosune is a compound word. Uh, DK is roughly speaking justice or rightness. Uh, sune uh, is, you know, the, the usually a prefix. In this case, it's a suffix that you associate with synonymous or simultaneous. Mm-hmm. It is together, right? Uh, so Dikaiosune, when we're talking psychologically or spiritually or morally, means that all of the parts of your existence are mm-hmm. ordered rightly together. Uh, when we're talking about, you know, a city, which we're going to be talking about a fair bit over these uh, 10 episodes of Plato, uh, it means that the parts of the city are rightly ordered with each other. Uh, and so, as, as Ed noted, the traditional translation for Dikaiosune when you translate Plato's Republic is to translate it as justice, which is a Latinate word, perfectly good Latinate word, I'd say. What's interesting is when the New Testament gets translated, uh, for instance, when Jesus says, uh, but I tell you, seek first the kingdom of God and it's Mm -hmm. dikaiosune. Yeah, we get righteousness instead of justice, right? Now, there are some, uh, you know, sort of reformist translations of the New Testament that render that as justice. But generally speaking, we think of it as uh, righteousness. Uh, Now, Robin Waterfield, who is a uh, British uh, translator of Platonic Dialogues and other Greek texts, uh, makes an interesting move. This is the translation I usually teach to my freshmen. Uh, He renders it as morality. 
Uh, and it's largely because in his reading, you know, this is first and foremost a dialogue about the soul and we're only talking about the city as a commentary <laughs> on the soul. And I think there's some merit to that. But uh, so for our listeners, uh, whenever you hear us say justice, righteousness, morality, dikaiosune, that's all a constellation of words. And, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and do my normal riff here that uh, if ever you are in church and the preacher says what the Greek really means here, uh, you, you can just take a nap at that point because there's a whole body of texts called Plato's Dialogues where they do nothing but dispute what particular Greek words mean. Uh, and most of the time, by the end, you still don't know. Uh, so, you know, remember that as with so many things, when we talk about philosophy and linguistics, uh, it's always mm -hmm. up for grabs. It's always mm -hmm. contested, right? Ed, is there anything else on Dikaiosune you'd want to add before we move forward? No, yeah, so, I, I mean, I think the the New Testament stuff, well, the Old and New Testament stuff is is really interesting in that in that regard, right? So Jesus talking about um, righteousness in the kingdom of God. Then, you know, equally all over the Pauline epistles, you know, Romans, Dikaiosune oh, yeah, Theiu, yeah. the mm -hmm. righteousness of God. But mm -hmm. is it the righteousness of God or is it the justice of God? Mm -hmm. Um Yes, we could do and, a whole show on that. <laughs> well, yeah, and then and then and then so equally in 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 Plato's Republic, you get um. Well, is, is, are we talking about righteousness here? Sort of uh, righteousness has its own really thick religious connotations these days. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a word that that we use outside of like very very like specific religious. Context, unless I say, like, Nathan is a really righteous dude. Um, <laughs> dude. But, yeah. um, you know, one thing that I like about the word justice and it, it, is that the word just, the English word justice captures all of the complexity that I think is behind Dikaiosune talk, right? Hmm. And so, and, and I suppose, like, this isn't an accident that the English word justice is just informed by this incredibly rich and complex etymological heritage, hmm. right? So, so we can use the English word justice to—I mean—to talk about um, justice in the most wide sense of like the the right ordering of society. We can use it in slightly more narrow senses to talk about, say, criminal justice to pick out a specific aspect of social ordering. Um, we can use it as to refer to a kind of a personal virtue um which is maybe a little bit more unusual but you know it still happens sometimes justice was a virtue for aristotle like a personal virtue for aristotle so it's so but it, it captures all of that business about like the the right ordering of things whether we're talking about society as a whole or um the individual state of one's of one's psyche so i like hmm. justice as a translation, but you got to keep in mind that it's like capturing, capturing all of this. Right. The only objection I'd make to that, Ed, is that we have literary characters um, like uh, Inspector Javert in mm -hmm. Les Miserables, right? Who, you know, when we talk about him, we can talk about him as the picture mm -hmm. of justice, but ultimately that drive for justice keeps him from seeking what mm -hmm. is best for people. And if Plato would hear that, he'd say, well, then in that, in that case, whatever he's seeking, it's not Nikaiosune. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, uh, I, I guess that's right. And then we can get into a debate about competing accounts of what Nikaiosune is. But, you know. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And, and you know, obviously the Republic is one <laughs> extended dispute yeah. over what that is. So, I mean, we're kind of doing that work F right philosophers now, Philosophers right? sometimes make a distinction between... Um, the uh, between a concept and a conception right so a mm. a concept is a really broad specification of what an idea is about whereas a conception is a very specific debate we've already settled what the concept is the conception is a very specific debate about what the content of that conception is right so we might be having multiple kinds of disagreements about 
the idea of justice. And it might be the case that actually you and I are cross talking at cross purposes. We're actually talking about different concepts. Like you, you might be talking about the concept of justice in the sense of criminal justice. And I might be talking about the concept of justice in terms of like, um, uh, what Paul is talking about in Romans say, right? Yeah. And then we, and, or, we might both be talking about what Paul is talking about in Romans, but you and I have diff- dueling conceptions of what that specification is, right? And so with regard to your Javert comment, like are Plato and Victor Hugo having debates about one and the same concept or are they having a debate about dueling conceptions of that concept? Mm. That's that's well I know I've had I've had a thought but now it's it's morphing because Ed's making me think which is good. Um I I I'm curious about the so the, the different forms of the word that we encounter here because I get you know we we spend a lot of time talking about just actions and a little time talking about just people and the distinction between a just person and just action um, is again something which comes up repeatedly as as uh, as one goes through the republic but um, you know where do the two meet where do they distinguish themselves here because we spend a lot of time talking about just action when Thrasymachus, you know, is, is, is introduced to the dialogue. And I know the end goal, uh, the end, you know, the, the end goal of, of much, uh, that is found in this dialogue is the formation of a just character. So I'm just wondering what you, what you think about that distinction and how it plays here. That's helpful. Like I was a little bit afraid that talking about conceptions and concepts is, would just be, a a, a rabbit hole but but I, I think that distinction in some ways can be useful in trying to frame what the disagreement is about mm-hmm. as Socrates first talks to Cephalus and then Polemarchus and then ultimately Thrasymachus who we should probably chase to in a second but like <laughs> are they having disagreements about the same thing or like are they all agreed yeah we're talking about the same concept but we have three different conceptions for it or actually is a better way of understanding the disagreement that they're actually talking about three different things entirely. And, and they're, and, you know, Thrasymachus and Polemarchus and Cephalus are just sort of confused about what, what's going on there. So, you know, so to direct two points, sorry, to direct it to Todd's point, like, are we talking about uh, things that people do? Or are we talking about, like, the state of one's inner being? And then one thing about Plato through all of this is that, you know, Plato might want to resist the idea that that there are dueling conceptions Mm -hmm. of this idea of justice. Because insofar as we're talking about just actions, a just society, a just soul, there has to be something in virtue of which we call all three of those things just. One, one one thing in virtue of which all of those things are just. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you say that justice has a certain (laughs) form? Spoiler alert. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's, you know, so that's, that's controversial, but ultimately for Socrates, Plato, like there's gotta be one thing in virtue of which all of these things in virtue of which all of these things are true. So that can be a kind of a, a hanging question for us and for everybody who listens to this podcast as we look at these different specifications, especially in book one. Like, are they actually talking about the same thing? And then Plato's going to insist, yeah, they have to be because we're just using this word just. So there has to be something in virtue of which they all they all share in common. Well, I want to bring uh, Thrasymachus in as mm. a literary character because I think part of what makes Plato so much fun is that he doesn't just present ideas. He also has these wonderful characters that come across in the dialogue. So starting in 336b, and this is from the Reeve translation. Now, while we were speaking, Thrasymachus had tried many times to take over the discussion, but was restrained by those sitting near (laughs) him who wanted to hear out our argument to the end. When we paused after what I had just said, however, 
He could not keep quiet any longer. Crouched up like a wild beast about to spring, he hurled himself at us as if to tear us to pieces. Paula Marcus and I were frightened and flustered as he roared into our midst. And I think before we ever get to, to Thrasymachus's ideas, we have to have this image in our head uh, that, I mean, Thrasymachus just hulked out on us and now he's going to be the uh, philosophical Hulk. So, uh, no, no, <laughs> Todd, I mean, this you're is shaking it, your head. It, what do you it, got, it man? It really is. Um, there are these moments where where you see this kind of uh, uh, explosion of 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 fervor in the description of, of, of certain people uh, in various of the dialogues. And, the, you know, this this is <laughs> he's not being presented in a very sympathetic manner, shall we say. Uh, he, you know, That's he's, he's absolutely, um, and I, you know, boy, if you just read that and didn't go any further, you'd think this guy is an unthinking hack who's just, you know, who's, who's, who's there to destroy, uh, you know, to dis destroy any semblance of, of, uh, of actual discussion, uh, from, from happening, you know, I mean, this is, uh, this is the, the and maybe that is, Maybe that's exactly the way that Plato feels about him. Uh, certainly the way he enters the conversation um, is... Right. He, he is your least favorite political <laughs> entertainment figure. <laughs> well, he's kind of a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody in our political moment. Oh, well, whichever, whichever party you're thinking <laughs> of right now, that's who he is. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, somebody who's just Fake going, news. This is fake news, Socrates. Well, I was, I was going to... Is it Rudy Giuliani that comes to mind? Or is it, no. you know... <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving yeah, that blank. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, not a sympathetic character for sure. Um, and actually, you know, I would say, um, having not taught this portion, it would be interesting to know how students react to that because that definitely sets you off a, a road of expectation about what's to come. And maybe colors, you know, maybe colors Absolutely. your impressions Absolutely. and that's fine. I'm sure it's intentional. Well, and this is where Ed's distinction between concept and conception gets really interesting because with Thrasymachus, as Socrates presses him and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. interrogates him, right, I, I would say, and Ed, I, I want you to disagree with me if I'm wrong here, I would say that Thrasymachus doesn't just shift his conception of Dikaiosune, but he goes to an entirely different mm -hmm. concept of it, right? Because at first, Dikaiosune is essentially yeah. a con job right he says that it's whatever is to the benefit of the strong it is a made-up set of rules uh to keep people from taking power away from those with power but then when socrates you know presses on him some dikaiosune becomes not a tool of the strong but it becomes a disposition of weakness in the first place so i mean you know in in both of those cases uh, you know, certainly they are related in a narrative sense, right? You can intelligibly mm -hmm. give an account for how he goes from one to the other. But if you examine him on their own terms, it seems to me that he completely reverses his own course about mm -hmm. what it is. So the, the his there is Socrates, right? I don't remember. Well, yeah, <laughs> so and that's right. Say, and, got run um, with it. <laughs> you know, as we'll see, uh, the, some other people in the party get are dissatisfied with Socrates' response to Thrasymachus and feel like that he hasn't really done a job in 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 refuting the view. Mm. Um which is also <laughs> well, book exactly, two. Not so, steal from book two. Um, we're just That would be odd to Chaos Ed. That would be odd that, to Chaos. Again, just setting it up for um our laters and our betters. But um the um the Rudy Giuliani comparison I think is really apt in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, so for one thing, like Thrasymachus is a real person. People would have heard of Thrasymachus. Hmm. He was a well-known sophist philosopher, yeah. which meant effectively like his game was going around teaching rich aristocratic Athenian senators mm -hmm. leaders to to make and win arguments. You know. So he's like a a fourth century lawyer, like you know, the worst kind of the lawyer. worst. <laughs> yeah. But 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 equally, you know, a, a prominent sophist philosopher who's articulating a view. Like this is kind of the crazy thing about reading the Republic in this way that like Thrasymachus, 
For me, whenever I teach an old book, there's always a kind of a paradox on the one hand that these people are living and writing in an intellectual universe that is wholly different and alien from ours, you know? Like, we should have as much expectation of understanding what they're talking about as we would have if we landed on Mars and met a totally alien, another different life form. But at the same time, they are human beings wrestling with the kinds of problems and issues that human beings wrestle with. So in Thrasymachus, we find the most familiar of modern voices, right? This is just Nietzsche. Um, I mean, it really is just Nietzsche in a lot of ways, right? Um, it's this idea that the thing that we call justice or morality is just a put-on from those in power to make us malleable so that they can do to us what they, what they, what, what's useful for them, not for us, right? Oh, certainly. I mean, there's threads of that in Karl Marx. There's threads yes. of that in Machiavelli. I mean, certainly Nietzsche is the, the most mm -hmm. ready comparison, but uh, there's definitely Thrasymachus figures in modern philosophy. I'll agree with that. And yeah, and so, and so it's, it's, it's really exciting in some ways to read this and also to learn like the best fourth century put downs. Like my favorite line is that when he's arguing with Socrates and Socrates at this point has him up against the ropes and it's clear that he's about to go down. And Thrasymachus says, um, his insult is, let that be your banquet, Socrates, at the f <laughs> as at the Feast of Bendis. Which I have no idea what that means, but apparently that's a really awful thing to say to a person. Zing let that up. be your banquet, Nathan, as at the Feast of Bendis. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, we should spend some time on the way that Socrates counters them, right? Because Thrasymachus... Uh, I mean, he's a wonderfully entertaining character, but his ideas are fairly straightforward. I mean, idea alpha is Dikaiosune is the big con job that the powerful use to keep down the poor. Uh, idea beta is that Dikaiosune is ultimately a rule-following stance of weakness, and ultimately the unrighteous or the unjust person uh, is going to end up more powerful because uh, because good is stupid. Uh, sorry, space balls. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's the idea that, you know, the you know, the unjust person is going to end up being more powerful, better able to exert uh, his preferences in the world, uh, precisely because the, the, the person who is just is going to be concerned with maintaining norms, whereas the unjust person doesn't have those limitations. Uh, and Socrates comes back at him with a, a series of arguments. Uh, are there any of them, guys, that you want to start out with? We don't have to go in his order, but we certainly could. This is just like class, isn't it? Uh, people are, it really people is. are scanning yeah, notes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, I... <laughs> um, Why don't you lob well, I'll, I'll jump in here. I'll jump in here. I'm, I, I'm not going to be like class here. Uh, because our, our listeners didn't download to listen to a class, they downloaded to listen to a podcast, right? But I, but I think that his argument at the end of book one mm. is one of my favorites. It is the argument from the pirate ship, as I call it, because uh, in a crew of criminals or in a ship full of pirates, you know, if the pirates, and I'm going to use pirates because I love pirates, uh, are completely without any kind of mm -hmm. justice, right? then what's going to happen is their ship is never going to go anywhere because you actually have to coordinate mm -hmm. human action even to pursue a ship as a pirate. Uh, and so what Socrates says is what you end up with is a situation where only the pirates with the most Dikaiosune are able to actually accomplish the ends mm -hmm. of pirates, right? And, you know, later on in the philosophical tradition, I love this, this gets translated into the notion that uh, Augustine and Boethius pick up on, namely that any kind of evil that is intelligible as evil is some kind of corrupted goodness, right? Uh, well, here, Socrates, you know, without any kind of biblical background or anything like that, is articulating that, you know, just in terms of human community, right? Uh, if you have a, a truly terrifying invading army, whether they be uh, Persian or Gallic or whatever else, uh, the only reason that they are terrifying is because they already have Dikaiosune, right? And this is the one that eventually breaks Thrasymachus. Uh, Thrasymachus grants that, okay, you know, ultimately the, uh, the, the Dikaios person uh, is going to be 
more effective and, you know, be is going to be able to do more things in the world than the person who is just completely disordered, right? Uh, and that's what leads into what Ed was nodding to in book two, where Glocken, the brother of Plato, says, well, hold off, Socrates. I think we should go another <laughs> 300 pages or so. But we're not going to do that today. Hmm. You know, the other big ones that I see are the argument yeah. from medicine uh, and then the argument from wages. Uh, do you guys want to take one of those on? Well, so the wage thing is interesting. I mean, I know, I know you had you had you had noted this down as something you thought was interesting to talk about, um, and, and it raises all kinds of questions. I mean, so there there's this discussion about who you know about those who rule and um, uh, what you know if they're ruling to their own advantage, which is the the the, the standpoint that that uh, Thrasymachus comes from. Um, then why should they be paid? Uh, why do you pay, you know, do you pay them? Do you pay those that are gaining from their, uh, from their activities, uh, in another way? Um, and we could go, you know, not necessarily to the purpose of, of laying out, um, the, the argument that is being made in this text. We could go, it, that's a, there's a discussion right there that, that is, that, it's really, to me, very interesting. Ask the question of what are the benefits of ruling or what are the benefits of doing anything? And if one benefits in any particular way apart from wage earning, um, should they be paid at all? I mean, ultimately, ultimately what, what we come to in, in, in later, uh, sections of the Republic is the question of, do we do we want anybody who actually wants to rule in the spot of ruling? So the question of of wage earning as being a separate craft from other crafts to me is an interesting, definitely an interesting uh, wrinkle that I'm not sure necessarily helps this argument, or at least it seems to me that it kind of gets perhaps gets in the way. I don't know. What do y'all? What do y'all think? What well, What I'm reminded of is uh, hmm. Wayne Booth's argument about uh, doubt. Uh, you know, I mean, his big uh, philosophical contribution to that sort of epistemological mm-hmm. conversation is that in order even to doubt, you have to have a matrix of common assent. Hmm. I think is his phrase uh, that you know, unless you agree that there are standards of evidence, unless you agree that truth is even worth seeking in the first place, unless you agree that this or that counts as evidence in this or that question, there's no room even to doubt something until you've got that system built up around it, right? And it, it strikes me as not identical with, but analogous to what we've hmm. got going on here, right? Uh, you know, in order to benefit from ad de unrighteousness, injustice, whatever else, there has to be a, a matrix in place, if you will, uh, where people expect justice, right? They expect you to be doing for them. Because if you just come in and say, I'm going to mistreat you and I'm going to treat you like so much mud, that's not going to get the people going for you. You know, and I mean, as, as you know, Socrates himself says later on, it's the art of deception that makes a tyranny. It's not necessarily the art of, you know, sharp blades and strong biceps. Because your strong biceps and your sharp blades might be able to take 10 or 20 people, but to be a tyrant over a city, you also have to lie to them. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. But I, I like the I like the wage, hmm. and I, and part of the reason I like the wage argument so much, I think, is because I have, you know, again, over the last, you know, 14 years or so, taught this to mm-hmm. college freshmen uh, who come in, you know, telling me that, you know, you come into college to get a job, and my next question is always, what is a job? <laughs> and, you know, what the, the direction that it goes is that, you know, Socrates is basically right here. Unless you can do something that is good for the other, they're not going to give you their money for it. So, you know, what you are really studying is the conferring of good to other people. Right. Right. And and, and, and that then is is where this is helpful for this discussion, because Thrasymachus is arguing that the rulers rule for themselves and only for themselves. Precisely, precisely. Right, right, right. Well, and that's, yeah, that's part of the dialogue about, you know, does the does the shepherd really care for the sheep or care for the banquet? Yeah, yeah. You know, are you a pet or are you mutton? <laughs> you might be both. <laughs> huh. Ed, what do you want to add to that? I think you're muted, Ed. 
you know what you said earlier is is clearly false like you can sell things to people that are clearly bad for them. I mean, like ninety percent of what we sell to people are clearly are clearly bad for them. Example: e-cigarettes, coffee. Oh no, now Todd, come come. <laughs> we all know that coffee is hey, good for you. The fact that I have this and three others like it. The question is whether you have like any jewel capsules <laughs> hidden away in your office. I definitely or, do not. Um. <laughs> Well, let's take Jewel as an example, Ed, because I, I want to run with this because... I've been thinking about Jewel a lot these days, actually. <laughs> Fewer things make me more angry than, like, just seeing people vape. It, like, it makes me so much angrier than seeing people smoke cigarettes, which I understand in its own way. I mean, I think that's not good for you, but, like, I understand why people do it. But whenever I see anybody vape, it kind of drives me into a thrasimican like, irrational anger that makes me want nice. to just go up to them and punch them in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But l- let me run with that example for a moment because people do not buy their jewel capsules so that it will kill them uh, unless they are suicidal in which they think that oblivion is something good, right? So, I mean, I think what Socrates would say, and I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, Socrates a sock puppet <laughs> here, is that the, the reason people buy those things is not for the bad but for the good, yeah. right? The fact that they also get the bad means that they have a defect in their wisdom, their ability to see how individual moments relate to the larger story, how individual pieces relate to the larger picture, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And so, for them, uh, and in fact, I mean, I don't have to say Socrates would say this, he says it later in the dialogue, but we'll save that Mm -hmm. for other hosts, right? Uh, That, you know, when we're talking about uh, something that is objectively bad, people don't buy it for the bad, but they buy it for the sake of the good that they perceive, even if their perception is inadequate. Yeah. Yeah, so Socrates famously doesn't believe in weakness of the will. He thinks that the only right, decisions right. that we make that are bad for us are actually failures of the intellect. And if you just saw that they were bad for you, then you wouldn't buy them. Right, that's Aristotle's contribution mm-hmm. later on, right? With the idea of uh, incontinence as, as uh, opposed to injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Very good, very mm-hmm. good. Well, guys, we are uh, coming up on the end. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've been grabbing the wheel too much, but it's probably because I've taught this so many times. Uh, are there any other bits of book one that you guys want to get out there on the table for our listeners before we wrap up? I, I've got one one thing, which, again, is, is sort of a, a discussion starter, not, not, a, not, a well-formed, not a well-formed opinion or statement. But it's interesting to me, and I know this is a you know this is a bit of debate which 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 people engage in concerning uh, this matter. But justice as craft or techne is a, is a strange thing to me because it seems that justice as virtue has an end, good, and the craft. To try to apply that language to justice seems seems weird, since, as is even a point that is made in the dialogue itself, skill in medicine can bring both sides, can 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 cure and can kill. And it, does justice really fit that framework? Because half of what Socrates says here is 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 using the language of craft as a stand-in when when he's really talking about justice. So, I mean, to me, that's an open question as to why why he does that, and is it effective? Is it helpful? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is an interesting point. I'm assuming that that view gets articulated because that's just a view that mm. people have, and then Socrates wants to disabuse people of that. Like, it can't be that mm-hmm. at all, right? It's got to be something else. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's his uh, series of counterexamples, right? You know, justice, if we're going to say that it's something good, it can't be exactly analogous to knowledge of bodily systems because knowledge of bodily systems can do medicine or it can poison mm-hmm. people, right? So when we say medicine, or at least when I see Socrates talking about medicine, it is the technical know-how and it is the theoretical knowledge and it is the orientation towards goodness rather than away Mm. from goodness. Mm -hmm. It seems like if all three of those aren't there, then Socrates is going to say, this resembles medicine, but it's not actually Mm. medicine. Mm. Yeah. Any other bits, guys? Because like I said, I I feel like I I railroaded us today, and I do apologize for that. (laughs) No, no. I I mean, I was just going to say that, um, 
I mean, the point that you made earlier about the pirate ship argument is it, like that's such a nice argument because it not only refutes the position that Thrasymachus is trying to articulate, but it starts to develop the kind of the kind of picture that Socrates wants to get to, namely that justice is an ordered psyche, right? It isn't some crazy pirate ship where everybody is just acting in an anarchic way, right? But like the a, a good pirate ship, as it were, needs to be like orderly and uh, you're, you're not going to accomplish anything unless everything is in its place and ordered and everybody kind of is is doing is doing its part right 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 which which is kind of what makes the book really exciting to me Hmm. i mean the point of the book is where i i think the morality translating to kaya morality kind of gets at what the book is really about so it's a little bit like well why why should we be moral like isn't that just a sucker's game isn't thrasymachus right why does that matter isn't it really the case again this is like a book two kind mm-hmm. of a thing but like you know we only act justly because we're afraid of getting caught mm-hmm. and so i mean the republic in some ways is like the most amazing and dynamic of books because it gets to the fundamental questions of like what what human life is about very good well ed i think i'm going to use that as our segue (laughs) that was our next on the core curriculum but i do want to uh thank you listeners for downloading and listening in i strongly encourage you to get yourself a copy of plato's republic you can get the uh, oxford world's classics edition i think still for less than 10 bucks uh you can get the hackett translation that the three of us have been using uh, also pretty cheap, so uh, run out and get yourself one. Uh, next episode, predictably enough, is going to be book two. It's going to start engaging some of the questions that Ed was pointing us to there at the end. Uh, and Ed, Todd, I want to thank you for uh, jumping in on this conversation. The Core Curriculum is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, our editor for this series is Dr. Michael Farmer. And I am Nathan Gilmore without a tagline to go out on, so go read some Play-Doh.